we are on the brink of a mental health crisis. And this is why I am so appreciative of the folks over at BetterHelp. They provide the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, and affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. Sign up today. Go to BetterHelp.com and use the promo code Solving Healthcare and get 10% off sign-up fees. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadjo Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation. Welcome back, folks. I am excited. I'm feeling good. We're entering summer months. The weather is wonderful. We got a new puppy, Coco Chanel. Like life is grand and uh, I don't know. I'm just I'm just feeling good to happy to connect with all of you guys and this episode today with Kristen Flannery. I think you guys are going to love it. Like she and her family have gone through the ringer. So her husband, Will, who by the way is Dr. Glaucoma Flecken, who who everyone has seen his amazing posts on TikTok and Twitter. He's he's amazing. But he's gone through two cycles of testicular cancer and it has experienced a cardiac arrest. Her perspective on being on the other side was just so enlightening, so eye-opening. She's been doing some tremendous work advocating for, you know, CPR training and just patients and families that are going through uh, tough times. Like she really is, uh, I like to say, a hero because of her advocacy. And it's really inspiring. I think you guys are going to love this episode. I'm going to just do a quick drop-in of Solvent Wellness. We are changing the boogie with this thing. Virtual workouts, yoga sessions, mindful meditation, nutrition tips, meal planning, all on one platform. Go to solventwellness.com. Check it out. I think by the time this airs, we've even updated the website. Let's go. Anyway, without further ado, folks, Kristen Flannery. Podcast Nation. Wow, we woo woo. Okay, we have a special guest that we have. Uh, actually, we were introduced through uh, Haley Harlock, who was also a guest on the show, talking about uh, physician families and, and issues around that. But we have Kristen Flannery, and I think what you're going to hear from her is going to rock you a little bit. And this is good because I, I want us healthcare providers to be rocked 
and so that we provide the best care possible. So, Kristen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hundred percent. You know, a we were talking before starting about where to go with all the things that you've experienced as uh, you know your mom, your your husband, who is like. Uh, TikTok, Twitter fiend. We'll we'll show links. We'll have links to some of his hilarious content. Um, being a, a spouse of a cancer survivor and a cardiac arrest survivor, so many areas we're gonna go. But maybe we could start off with, you know, as uh, seeing Will, your husband, uh, going through the cancer experience. What, like, I don't even know where to, like, it's such a big question, but like, what was that like? What went through your mind from diagnosis and moving through different stages? Like, what was that experience like? Um, it was, it was really crazy. Um, we were in our mid to late twenties when that happened. Um, so it was obviously not something we were expecting or planning for ourselves. Um, we had been married for uh, just a few years at that point, he was in medical school. I had just graduated from grad school um, and we were waiting for him to finish medical school so that we could move on to the next place. And um, so we decided to go ahead and have our first kid during that time. So we had a, a baby who was almost a year old and um, we went to visit my parents for Christmas one year and he felt a lump on his testicle. And so when we got back home, he went to the doctor and, and we got it checked out. Um, we thought we were just going for, you know, the ultrasound appointment to verify whether or not um, that was anything to worry about. And they saw that it had blood flow. Um, it was cancer and they wanted to go ahead and just send him right back to surgery from that ultrasound. So it was a whirlwind. It was just boom, 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 you know, out of nowhere. Um, so he went back to surgery and thankfully that was all he needed for treatment. Um, so then, then it was all over just as quick as it came, you know, wow. they had every reason to think that, um, that he was going to be fine. It hadn't spread. There were no concerning signs, um, told us what to look out for in the future and send us on our way. And that was kind of a weird little blip in the road, you know, and it certainly did shake our sense of, you know, when you're young, you have that sense of just invincibility almost. And, and at the very least that, you know, you can expect relatively good things to happen to you and all of that kind of delusional thinking <laughs> of your twenties, um, was pretty, um, you know, we, we were pretty disillusioned quickly by all of that, but it was, like I said, it just came and it went. And so, um, it didn't affect things too much until we were in residency. This was about um, probably three years later. And he, we had had another baby his first year of residency. So then when that baby was almost a year old, he got a second occurrence of testicular cancer. And it wasn't okay. that the first one had spread. It wasn't that they had missed some of it, nothing. It was an entirely separate independent occurrence um, in his other testicle. And that's really rare for it to happen to people in both. Um, you know, with the first one, we kind of felt like, well, if he's going to get a, you know, in that form of cancer with testicular cancer, he is in the demographic of people that get it. And so, you know, that's unlucky, but it's, you know, 
at least there's some kind of, um, you know, explanation or, or that's fairly normal within the cancer world, at least. Mm-hmm. Right. But then the second time that he got it, that was even within the cancer world, that's very rare. So that one felt like more of a blow. That one was a lot harder emotionally. Um, and it also came with much more serious consequences for day-to-day life, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, they obviously, he at that point needed a bilateral orchiectomy. And so that meant that we would not have a chance to have any more children. Um, and it also meant a year or so of just the worst PMS that you can imagine from someone who has no experience dealing with PMS because mm. he's male. Um, it was just a, a lot of trial and error with his hormone therapy. Um, and that was a rough year to get through, but it was also, it's scary even still, you know, to be anytime you're dependent on something that's external that you don't control, that's scary. Um, and it's very tightly regulated medication and he can't, you can't build up a backstock, you know, for if you're going to travel or something. So, so there's always these logistics to work out around it, constant, you know, renewals of his prescription and just all this back and forth with the doctor's office, the insurance companies, the pharmacy. Um, it's kind of a, a hassle, but it's also a little bit unnerving to know that if anything were to happen to his access to that medication, that would really have some detrimental effects on his health. Um, and on his mood and his, you know, well-being. So, so that is, it's all very odd. You know, by the time he had his second one, I think he was only 31. Mm. So to have survived cancer twice by age 31, meanwhile, having two, you know, a toddler and a baby and pursuing a medical career. And I was pursuing my own career um, outside of medicine it just felt like this is really bizarre. This is just not supposed to happen. Unnatural. To, you know, people like that. Yeah. It just, it just was, was odd. And of course that's also a delusion. You know, it, ha- it does happen. It happens to people of all kinds. So, um, but it just, it's uncommon, I think, you know, to have that one twice. And it just felt like, just shakes your sense of security in the world, you know, when you're a young family and you go through a serious illness like that, not once, but twice. So. I mean, if you think about it, it's crazy. I mean, we're, we, I mean, I'm a pop of three who have gone through residency. Um, my wife also, you know, did some professional training and to think about just going through that in general, like you guys, I think you uh, I would say relative had kids relatively young when it comes to the medical mm-hmm. folk. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, then- we did it all wrong. We had one in vet school <laughs> and one in residency. Like here, we had a plan for doing it that way. It wasn't on accident, but yes, it's not recommended. <laughs> oh my goodness! I mean, but at the same token, thank God it happened that way, though. Eh? Exactly. Like uh, to be able to 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 have your family um, before the wheels came off here. But, yeah, if but, we hadn't, we wouldn't have been able to have children if we had waited till he was done with medical training. So absolutely worked out. And so, yeah, and to think about you know all that you're going through, what how scary it must be trying to tackle all this. And I'm I'm not I don't I mean the other thing too. I don't know if you guys had to move around too, just being mm-hmm. oh, in, yeah. in training. Um, like that's heavy. 
That's absolutely yeah. heavy. Yeah, we weren't around family. I, you know, we didn't have any help. We were in a new city. So yeah, it was it was intense. <laughs> and I, I I guess you know, with within that timeline, you know, like we're we're talking about, you know, advocating for family members that are going through these tough times. Was there any key moments while you while you were seeing Will go through this or your family was actually going through this? Where where you were like, man, the medical community, we need to we need to be better. We need to better serve the family unit or experience during his cancer journey. Yeah. So he had, you know, this this was in two different places that he had the the cancer occurrences, two different states in different parts of the country and different hospital systems. Uh, in both cases, he had really good medical care, so no complaints there. Um, it was more about the emotional side of things, the psychological side of things, and then also the um, the family member and the caregiver side of things. Um, there are some supports for cancer patients and cancer survivors to help them um, you know, find each other and process these things that have happened to them. And, you know, there are some supports in the cancer world um, that, that are, that exist. They may not be in the hospital themselves, but sometimes they are, sometimes they're nonprofit organizations. Um, there's not really the equivalent for all the people closely attached to the patient that this is also happening to, and that it is also changing their lives and their world perspectives. Um, so, there was just nowhere where someone was going through what I was going through to be able to connect with or turn to. Um, and then also just little things like when, you know, the second time he got cancer and he felt that lump and he called right away to schedule an appointment and they couldn't see us for like a week or something. And that is a completely normal thing that wouldn't turn any heads or have a second thought within the hospital system itself and the scheduling system. Um, but to us, that felt like an eternity. That was a week of wondering whether he had cancer or not. And if he did have cancer, how bad is it? Has it spread everywhere? Is he going to live? Am I going to be left to, to raise these two young girls all by myself in this city where I don't know anybody? You know, it it was all of the what ifs just playing through your mind in that for an entire week. Um, and there's limitations, I understand the scheduling, but anything you can do to kind of shorten those kinds of experiences is great. And then, you know, when I went into the appointment with him, it was always the doctor talks to him. The doctor looks at him. The doctor asks him if he has questions. I'm sort of a fly on the wall. Um, occasionally they might look over at me or ask me if I had a question, if they were really feeling um, generous with their time that day, but they're always in such a hurry to get on with things, right? Because the system forces them to see so many patients all in one day um, that you just don't feel like there's time as the person who's not the patient with a capital P to take up the doctor's time, right? With your own concerns. And so so again, there was just nowhere to turn. If I have these questions and I have these concerns, who can I talk to? Um, who's going to tell me what I need to expect in terms of how my life is going to need to be adjusted and 
my, uh, you know, expectations might need to be adjusted or it's always just focused on the patient. And, and rightly so the patient should have a lot of the focus, but, but don't forget about whoever it is that came into that room with the patient, because if they're there in that room in that most intimate moment of someone's life, that means that they are also experiencing that moment. They, you know, you don't come in with a stranger. That If they're there, that means they are deeply affected by this. And so they should also um, have some of the focus and offer at the very least to provide some support or care to that person as well. Yeah, I mean, you, you think about there's got to be, the, I mean, the need has got to be ultra high high for caregivers during this time or family members during this time, whether you're a caregiver, I guess, or just in like part of the family, you, you like you just put yourself in those circumstances, young mom, new to the city, no family around. What do you expect? Who can you reach out to for right. support? Like you would think there would be some level of peer support. You know what I mean? To just help navigate through the, this crazy journey that, you, you know, you're about to embark, 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 I can't go impart on. Yeah. A, <laughs> embark. In, yeah. yeah. Embark on. Sorry. English is my 15th language. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you. But wow. You know, when you think, when you put it that way, you would, you would think there's gotta be tons of resources and, and like, it's one thing that, you know, there might be some online pieces, but it, I mean, that's not, re- I mean, it's not yeah the same. I think that's the easy, like, that's what people want to do to kind of put a bandaid on it and feel like they did something. And it's not to diminish the work that happens in those kinds of groups. Cause I think some really good stuff can happen there and does happen there, but it's not for everyone. You mm. know, it's, it, um, I'm a pretty introverted person to talk to a bunch of strangers that I don't know about something so deeply personal as my husband's diseased testicles. I mean, it's not something that I want to, you know, just share with, with anybody. So, um, you know, in my case, I think I, I really wish that we could see the system incorporate more personnel, more roles mm. into it. Right. Of, I don't expect the MD in the room to be providing me with psychological support, right? Unless they're a psychiatrist, that is not what they train for. I want them focused on providing the medical care to the, to the disease, right? I want them to attack that. But you could have a social worker or a counselor or any number of, of things. You could, you could have partnerships with um, psychologist office in the area um, or in your own hospital even that you can then provide to that person, right? The doctor, at the very least, we can all just be humans with mm. one another, right? And recognize human needs in the human sitting in front of you. And mm. you can be careful with the word choices that you use. And you can think about what kind of information is helpful in this moment, what kind of information is not helpful in this moment, and what resources do I know about that I can offer as an option to these people? And if they want to take it, great. And if they don't want to take it, that's their choice. But we can't pursue options that we don't know about. So by having the system be aware of that issue from the get-go, 
um, and providing those MDs with with that kind of information to be able to hand out. And sometimes, you know, you'll see a brochure, a pamphlet, some, you know, everywhere kind of varies. Um, and some people will say, well, at my hospital, we have this great social worker. We have, you know, child life advocates that are the adult version of that. Um, and that is great, but I don't think that that's the norm. Those are typically the exception. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what I'm saying is we should take all those wonderful examples and make that the norm rather than the exception. Absolutely. And we were talking prior to recording, like as, as a, this is something we fully appreciate within ICU, uh, the, the need to have like you're treating the family just as much as you're treating the patient, just because mm-hmm. you know this is their unit. They're it's 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 a unit, and you know the other aspect of that is, especially when it comes to end of life, like it's an experience that they're never going to forget. It's gonna the way we communicate to family, the way we treat family, will directly impact their view of how their loved one like how their experience. So I I think everything you're saying, Kristen makes a lot of sense. And, and as you said, there's a lot of places that maybe do it better than others. Some people, some places don't have any resources, but the point is let's think about a way or let's, let's put some emphasis on this in treating family members just to, I mean, for the, even the, the sole reason of, being human, being good, <laughs> being right. empathetic. Um, yeah. And I think that there's a lot of um, education and efforts, thankfully, these days towards, um, you know, patient centered care. And I would like to see that expand. I know this exists to some extent, but I would love to see patient and family centered care be the norm, mm-hmm. not a niche field, not a nice idea, you know, but just, but actually be able to happen. Um, because those are, it's a whole, if you want to use a medical metaphor, it's like the, and I'm not in the medical field. So please, this will be very simple. Excuse me, any errors, but if you've got some sort of systemic disease, it doesn't make any sense to only focus on, you know, one part of the body. If the disease is affecting the entire part of the entire body, the other parts as well. Well, the the patient, the experience that patient is having does not just affect the patient. It affects everyone closely attached to that patient very seriously as well. So it doesn't make any sense to only focus on that one person. And maybe, you know, one role, maybe the doctor only focuses on that one person, but the system as a whole needs to focus on everyone. Um, And even the doctor, when you're in the room with the patient and with their families, you know, take what you know about how the body works and how the brain works, right? If those people come in and sometimes these things are unexpected and it's trauma and they may be in shock, it's not the time to talk to them about things that require their prefrontal cortex, right? It's not the time to tell them about statistics. It's not the time to give them the medicine regime. It's not the time to do any of of those sorts of things. You need to reach them where they are and where they are when they're in a state of shock is fully in their limbic system and in their brainstem. And so what's helpful in those moments is human touch and eye contact and 
how are you feeling? What can I do? Would you like a drink of water? You know, just attention to them as a human first. And then you can talk to them about the other things and make sure you're getting it in writing. They're not going to remember anything that you say. So make sure that you're having those conversations with them, but also that they have something tangible that they can take away to refer to when they are ready to process that kind of information. But then, you know, when you're coming in to the ED or the ICU from something traumatic that just happened, it's just not the time for, for data and facts and statistics. Yeah, I, I always say to the trainees, I call, or I call them the kids, like I always say, like, you know, tailor your message to the audience, like read the room. Mm-hmm. Right, know, exactly. If they're just, um, they're shocked. Yeah, I've heard this from several families, including MD families, where if there is that state of shock, nothing's registering. Like they're registering yeah. 12% of what you just said. Right. So, you know, be repetitive, take your time acknowledge the strong emotions yeah like have that level of empathy thrown down saying like you know you know acknowledging the emotions realizing like you i mean for most of us couldn't imagine being on that side of the table and uh listening and 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 taking your time sitting down being at their level all the other motherly things that we, we learn that's there for a reason and you're hearing firsthand how impactful it can be right yeah Yeah, like when when uh, my husband later had a cardiac arrest (laughs) unrelated by the way cancer (laughs) jesus wow um like so so i i mean i we could we could talk about that now but yeah i i I think we we did talk about that a little bit in the intro that uh you know will did have a a a cardiac like he died for a period of time and you saved him and um you know, I mean, maybe before talking about just the experience, you know, from on the family side, maybe we could walk us through like what happened. Like, yeah. So a few years, it's like every three or four years he tries to die. So <laughs> the first time cancer, three or four years later, more cancer, I think four years later, he had um, a cardiac arrest in his sleep. So he was 34, completely healthy. Otherwise, um, the, the second round of cancer, it all turned out fine. It, it was gone. It didn't spread all of that good stuff. Went on with life as usual. We had Mother's Day of 2020. Um, it was really early in the COVID pandemic. So everything was shut down and we just kind of had a nice day together as a family for Mother's Day. Went to bed that night. And then at 4.45 in the morning, I woke up to him making some really strange noises. Um, again, not a medical professional or trained in any medical. So he woke me up making some very odd noises and um, it sounded, I was really groggy because I was just in a deep sleep and I thought he was just snoring. And so being really groggy, I just kind of pushed his you know, shoulder over to try to get him to roll over and stop snoring so I could go back to sleep. Uh, but he kept making it and it sounded different you know it took me a second to kind of wake up and and register this but it it was more panicked it wasn't rhythmic it wasn't you know steady in any way um it had a gasping quality to it and it was very loud and alarming and of course later i learned and your audience will know that was agonal breathing i didn't know what that was i'd never heard of that before Um, but i knew that he wasn't acting normal 
and it was alarming and he wasn't responding to me when I tried to wake him up. Um, and so I called 911 and she, the dispatcher that I spoke with, she's the one that, that recognized that he needed CPR. Um, cause you know, I put my head on his chest to see if I could hear a heartbeat, if I could feel any, um, movement as he breathed and I didn't. And there was a piece of my brain that, that registered that. And when she asked, I was able to tell her, no, that's not happening. And then there was another piece of my brain that just could not believe that and couldn't make any sense of that. And so it was this weird, almost out of body experience where you've got, you know, the same information and your brain interpreting it two different ways all at the same time. It's this weird disconnect that you just can't quite, it gets to what we were talking about before. You can't quite register what it is that's going on, even if a part of you understands logically what's happening. So she gave me instructions to do CPR over the phone and um, it was on the bed and he's a foot taller than me, more than a foot. And got a good hundred pounds or so on me. And I had just had a cervical disc replacement a few months before. And so I didn't think that I could move him. I thought I would either hurt myself to the point that I would be incapacitated or I would hit his head on something, you know, just a nightstand, a bed frame and all sorts of things if I tried to just drag him. Um, So I just had to do it right there on the bed. And I did CPR for 10 minutes um, with her on the phone and thought about all sorts of things during that 10 minutes. It was a very surreal, um, experience. I think goodness for adrenaline, cause I don't think I could have physically done it otherwise, but yeah, then they, the paramedics arrived and they shocked his heart five times, gave him three rounds of epinephrine and a dose of amiodarone. And then finally got his, his heartbeat back. He had been in V-fib, caused a cardiac arrest. My God. I, I get chills every time I've heard this story. But, um, you know, first of all, I'm so glad that you obviously had the resolve to do what you needed to do in the moment and save your family. Like, it... it uh, like, wow. Um, you know. Yeah, never doubt a mother. <laughs> I just was one of the things I was thinking was, you're not leaving me here with these children, you know? So, uh. Oh my goodness. And, um, and yeah, so yeah, amazing, uh, you know, having that resolve and, and just, uh, you know, I just put myself in your shoes in that time, like a million things that could be running through your head. Like, or even moments after. So, like, okay, so paramedics come. They, they, sh- you know, shocked. Gave, gave the cardiac meds and brought his, uh, brought him back. Um, then what happened? Well, so they took him to the hospital by ambulance. Um, and back up and backing up a bit. While they were working on him, they took him downstairs to work on him on that hard floor, and um, there was one of them designated as kind of the family liaison. So he would go down um, and help. And then as he was able to, uh, he would come back up the stairs and talk to me and and give me updates about what was happening. He told me when they got his heartbeat back, he made sure to tell me right away. Uh, He explained what had gone on. 
Um, but the main thing that I remember about my interactions with him, his name was Lieutenant Greg, and they came in full hazmat gear because it was the beginning of COVID and, and nobody really knew for sure how, you know, how it spread and what was effective against it, what wasn't. So they were in hoods, shields, everything, the whole thing, hazmat suits. Um, so all I could see of him were his, his eyes and what I remember the most from talking to him and what I feel like made this so effective was he just had a look of compassion in his eyes. He was completely professional and gave me all the medical information. He did make sure to write it down for me. Um, but that look of compassion was the thing that really made me feel like I, he was seeing me and he was feeling for me, not in a way that was going to, you know, clog his judgment or make him unprofessional, but just in a way that it was a human to human connection. I could tell that he saw what I saw, which was how tragic this situation was, right? And it was this acknowledgement and validation of that in his eyes. All of that just communicated through, through the look in his eyes and through him being responsive and making sure to remember that I was there and I would want information um, and I would want updates about how he was doing. So, um, so he had been doing that. So I knew that he um, was okay. Well, okay. He, I knew that his heartbeat was back. He was still unconscious and they rushed him to the hospital. Meanwhile, I, um, I had to take care of all the logistics. So I called his clinic to tell him, to tell them that, they would need to reschedule his patients for that day. <laughs> and I called in sick to my job and I called his parents. They live 2000 miles away. So I called them to let them know in case they wanted to come up again, though it was early COVID. So they didn't feel like they could travel. I called my parents who live nearby and asked them to come and be with the children so that I could go up to the hospital um, and then, you know, the whole time, this was really early morning, still dark outside. Um, I was just crossing my fingers the whole time I was doing CPR, metaphorically at least crossing my fingers, that they would not come in to the room because I did not want them to see what was happening in there. Um, but there was noise, you know, I was on the phone. I'm sure I was probably talking kind of loudly um, while I'm doing CPR. And then the paramedics got there and the windows were open and I was kind of shouting out the windows to them to let them know which room I was in. And the, you know, all the trucks came with all the lights and everything. And um, they had woken up. I didn't know at the time whether they had or not, but they had. And when the paramedics came in, one of them, Lieutenant Greg, I think actually, um, I had told the dispatcher that I had kids in the next room and I didn't want to scare them. And so he shut the door and to their room. And when he did that, my older daughter, she was eight at the time, they were eight and five. And my older daughter sat up in bed and made eye contact with him. And he just kind of gently closed the door. And um, that was kind of a haunting moment um, for him because it just, it just makes it real. You know, the EMS have, a, have an advantage over the um, hospital personnel in that they go in to the house. They see the family photos. They see the family themselves. They see the dynamic between them. They see how worried everybody is. They see what's at stake here. You know, um, they bear witness to all of that. And I think it helps 
in that human to human interaction that I was talking about, that they do get to see that side. They get to see the personal family, intimate side of these people's lives. They don't just see an unconscious person in a, in a cold, sterile hospital gown, you know, hospital room in a gown. So I think that makes a difference in, in the kind of care that they are able to provide. But yeah. Um, yeah. So then I had to go in at seven o'clock or whatever it is that they're, they're allowed to, to get up and go into their room and say good morning and try to put on a normal face and a normal voice and provide some kind of explanation for why their dad wasn't there and why they saw the things that they saw. And it, it was rough because at that point, I didn't know if he was even going to survive. And if he did survive, I didn't know if he was still going to be himself, if he was still going to have any sort of mental functioning. We just didn't know anything at that point other than he had managed to get a, a heartbeat back. So that was really tricky. <laughs> and okay. that's a good example of that's the kind of information that I want in those moments as a caregiver, family member, right? Like he, Lieutenant Greg gave me all the medical information and he said, do you have any questions? And I said, yes. What do I tell my children? That's what's helpful, you know? Not, yes, I do. I have a question. What's the survival rate for cardiac arrest? You know, that's just not where your mind is. <laughs> so that's the kind of information that I'm, that I'm talking about that that's really, um, you know, it's not the prefrontal cortex stuff. It's, it's the deeper stuff, deeper brain, lower level system stuff of just, I have to go in that room now and talk to my children. What the heck do I tell them? You know? Wow. I, I just, I mean, it's, so heavy and so true like that i mean i'm once again i kind of just try and put myself in your in your in your shoes in that moment and i wouldn't even know what to say i don't know if like my instincts would be you know you do show your emotion like you deep down i think they they obviously know something's wrong Mm But wow, I, I don't like any like when it has just happened two and a half hours ago, whatever mm-hmm. is, you know, you're not I yeah. would imagine you're not thinking clearly. And no, Jesus. Yeah, no, that would that would be so hard. And, and, I mean, I've seen like in, in, in hospitals I've worked at, we have at least in the, in the emergency room, like when you could go like obviously this was early COVID. We have highly trained social workers that help with issues like this. And this is why I'm so you'll never hear me not give love to our social workers. Cause I think they're yeah. walking um, angels, but right. this really once again, illustrates how important of a role they, they can have and, and that need to once again, bring the family up to speed and, and acknowledge their, their experience as well. Right. So, so yeah. So like, I don't know this part of the story though, like like afterwards, you, you, you know, he's in the hospital now it's you, you've had to, you know, call all the people you've had to call. What next? Yeah. So I was allowed to go to the hospital. Um, I didn't, know it in that moment, but it was because he was an end of life case. And so um, that hospital's policy was only, you know, in extreme circumstances, could visitors come in. So they did let me come in. 
Um, and it really, I had just a really awful experience there. Um, and I, I hope, I really hope, and I like to think that it was because of the timing, right? That it was early COVID and nobody had really figured out what the protocols should be. And everybody had a lot of fear. Um, but some of the things I think can be attributed to that. And some of the things I think are just sort of um, oversights in the system that we could easily correct. So one of those, for example, was when I did come in, they took me, um, they didn't want me to wait in the general waiting room, I guess. So they put me in a room in radiology. So it was a room where the patients would, you know, after you get your gown on, kind of an intermediate waiting room where you'd gown up and then go into that room and then the person would come and get you and, and take you to your exam room from there. And I always, I like to do a pop quiz here of, can you think of any reason why that was a problem? About going into the radiology room? Yes. Well, uh, I've got 15 questions. Like, is it like, <laughs> there, obviously there's no radiologist around. I'm assuming it's, it's empty. Um, Every now and then a patient would come in, but, but kind of empty. Mm-hmm. Um, you're alone. You, can you see clinical cases from there? Like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so curious. I, I'm not sure yeah. what, um, what, uh, what made it hard. All of those are part of it. But the thing that was the biggest problem, the walls are lined with lead in radiology. Hmm. It cut me off from the outside world. So I'm already alone, as you say. My husband's in this situation. I can't be with him. I can't see what's happening to him. And then they took away my cell phone, essentially. Hmm. And they asked me to stay in that room. And that's where the doctors would come and give me updates periodically. So that's a good example of something that we just maybe haven't thought about fully and could easily fix, right? That's mm-hmm. just a matter of just put, put them somewhere else, make sure their cell phone signal, wherever you have people waiting, because I was tasked, of course, with being the liaison out to the rest of our family members and friends to fill them in on what was happening and give them updates as I got them. But I couldn't do that from that room. And so, and that's to say nothing of the emotional support that I was needing in that moment, right? So I would, I, there was a spot down the hall that I could walk to and get signal because it was right next to the lobby. So it wasn't through that. It was right next to a door that goes out to the lobby. So I wasn't going out into the lobby, but I was standing right next to that, to that door on the inside of it. And I would make a call or send the text or whatever I needed to do. And then I would go back into that room. Um, and I could see the room the whole time. So I could tell if there was a doctor coming in to give an update. Um, so I was just doing that. And I was there for, I don't know, probably hour and a half or something. And um, then the person who had let me in at the front desk came by and told me I had to leave the hospital because I was making people nervous. What does that mean? Like- because it was early in COVID and they didn't know yet if he had COVID, they didn't know if I had COVID and I had a mask on, but we weren't sure if how effective those were at that point. And because I was moving around and I was out in a hallway where the staff were walking occasionally, I mean, it's not like it was crowded, but because I was out in that more exposed area, I was making people 
nervous. And so they asked me to leave. So at that moment I had been, I had spoken to the cardiologist and gotten the update from them. And then they were in the process of transferring him over to the ICU. And I was waiting for the intensivist. Um, and so I never did get to talk to the intensivist. I had to call someone to come pick me up. I had to just go wait outside for 20 minutes until someone could pick me up. Um, and all of that could have been avoided if they had just thought about what my needs were in that moment and that I would need a cell phone signal. It's uh, yeah, patient and family experience. And I mean, COVID has made this extra shitty. Yeah, like, it's, 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 I mean, I probably don't need to say it. Everyone knows, but it is so horrible and an additional trauma to not be able to be there when your loved one is in the hospital for something that may take their life, you know, and you don't understand until you go through it, how much information you actually get just from being in the room, oh, you know, 100%. just from. I probably don't need to tell you guys that's your job, but you know, you see the color of their skin. You see how they're breathing. Is it regular? Is it not? You see the look on their face or do they seem comfortable? All of that. Are there any signs of life in there? You know, I, I had none of it. I was cut off from him for his whole treatment. I was cut off from the outside world while I was there in the hospital waiting room. Um, it just is a lot of isolation and additional trauma built on trauma, built on trauma that we're having to keep people separate in those moments. Those are the moments where you most need each other and we're having to tear people apart instead. It's, it's traumatic. Yeah. It's one of the, one of the relatively untold travesties of the pandemic. And as you experienced as Many of our healthcare providers have seen the impacts of like the isolation, seeing patients die alone, which, you know, I won't lie to you, like it, it made it, it made an, an already stressful situation that much more ugly when, right. you know, people that have, like I have a patient of mine, lived a great life, tremendous human being, tons of family wanting to be there, but, but couldn't. And, um, right. Yeah. And as you mentioned, it is trauma. It's Mm -hmm. straight up trauma. Um, And uh, I hope ultimately we we learn from these experiences. But um, but yeah, I I can't I legit can't imagine being in your shoes, especially with how many like at this stage, there must have been so many questions as you alluded to, like, you know, how stable is he? Uh, What's his brain like? Is is, what's the risk of going back into VF? so, so how did it turn out? Like, how did, uh, I mean, obviously Will's with you, but like, how did, yeah. like, how did the next few days or, or weeks even go after that? So they took him to the ICU and just as kind of their standard protocol for a case like his, they cooled him for 24 hours. They had to work really hard to keep him sedated so um you know on the on the ambulance ride even he was already trying to kind of pull up wires and things um he had a lot of fight that he was demonstrating Mm. um and that's another reason a quick tangent that's related but um the cardiologist when he came in to talk to me and give me the update he was giving me the statistics about survival rates and he actually told me like 
you know, we would have liked it better if if you had witnessed him collapse because those cases turn out better because then, you know, it just happened and CPR is given right away. With our case, we didn't know when it happened. We were both sleeping. So who knows how long it had been before we started CPR. That was really unhelpful and traumatic to hear, especially because the statistics he was giving me were averages, right? And and that did not take into account his individual case completely. And that he left out all the parts about that he was showing signs of life in there, right? He was trying to get the, he was thrashing and he was pulling at things. And then when they were trying to cool him, um, they cooled him for a while, but he kept trying to kind of wake up out of it. You know, they had to keep giving him more sedation. Um, he was strong and healthy and fighting. And that I feel like did not warrant, you know, giving me this warning that he's most likely going to die because he sure doesn't look like he's going to die, (laughs) you know? Mm. Um, But anyway, so yes, they cooled him. He, um, when they started rewarming him 24 hours later, woke up pretty easily, pretty quickly, Um, took a little bit of time. And then before very long, he was following commands and then I think by Tuesday, so, so he came in early Monday morning. By Tuesday evening, I was talking to him on FaceTime. Wow. And it was him. He was there. That was one of my big questions. You know, are you still there? Or was there brain damage? Was there, you know, what, what, what kind of collateral damage are we talking about? And he was still, you know, he, he still had some drugs in his system and stuff like the sedation. Um, and he was groggy and confused and cloudy and sad and scared and all these things. Um, so it wasn't like a normal conversation by any means, but I could tell that he was still himself and he was, you know, he knew who I was. He understood where he was. He had a lot of questions, (laughs) um, and everything indicated to me that he was, he was in there and, Mm. you know, the, the longer that he was off of the sedation, the, the clearer his, um, thoughts became and, and, you know, before very long at all, he was just back to his normal self by Thursday. He was home. Thursday was home. Thursday. He was home. What the, the, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Uh, And the arrest happened on Monday, Monday morning, Mm -hmm. Thursday. He was home. He was home by dinner time Thursday. Mm Mm-hmm. But what about um, like what do they think the cause the VF? We still don't know. Holy shit! He has he has yep. an ICD. Yes, he has an ICD. He got to wear one of those fun electric bras for a while before mm. the ICD was placed. Um, made some TikToks about that that were pretty <laughs> pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, he has got an ICD now, so he's. I don't feel as worried about him now because i know that he's got that kind of insurance policy right inside of his body right that it'll shock him if anything happens um but we don't know if our children are at risk or you know his family members um we don't know we don't have any idea what caused it how to prevent it (laughs) nothing it's just a lot of uncertainty he did not have covid it wasn't that that's everybody's first question um, there were no signs of any virus at any point 
when they looked for that. And he was home on Thursday, not coughing, spewing up COVID flavor. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, exactly. I mean, I don't mean to get all like, uh, I don't know, Inspector Gadget here, but it was like, it's <laughs> us, so many questions about. I know. But, uh, but th- that's, that's beside the point at this, at this juncture, but wow. I, once again, having that family lens, I, I mean, it's worth repeating that that's gotta be a challenge too. Like really, like you don't know what caused it. It's terrifying. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, you want to control as much as you can control. And part of that would be trying to prevent Right. This from happening again. I mean, I, I must say having the ICD is is extreme. So that's an internal defibrillator. Sorry for those that are uh, not familiar with the term, but the uh, yeah, they always want to know what the root cause is. Like often it could be hereditary, genetic, something right. uh, structurally abnormal with the heart. Yeah, and all of his tests came back clear. Mm-hmm. Um, he had angiograms and CT scans and MRIs and just I think there were like 60 tests in the ICU while he was unconscious of all the stuff inside of him. So everything came back clear. Um, the only thing that maybe is related is he did have one genetic mutation, but it was the variation of unknown variant of unknown significance. So mm-hmm. if it did cause it, science doesn't know why or how. <laughs> so. So we don't know if our children share that mutation or if that means that they're at risk. If they do, we just, nothing. We are very, we just live with a lot of uncertainty. Oh my God. Well, I'm really like, obviously glad Will's okay. I'm sorry that you guys are having to deal with that level of uncertainty. Um, how do you get, how do you do it? How do you, <laughs> what's your, how are you approaching life right now? I think part of it is just, you know, you don't have a choice. <laughs> you, we, we do it because we have to. We didn't choose it. So, um, so there's that. But also, we have always, we both have a pretty good sense of humor um, and have always approached life with a sense of humor. We it, kind of have a dark sense of humor, right? We can find humor even in um, really dark stuff. <laughs> so, Um, I mean, really, when you think about it, two rounds of cancer and then a cardiac arrest all by age 34, that's hilarious. (laughs) It's horrible and it's hilarious. Like, really, really, now you're going to have a cardiac arrest. What's next? You know, you're going to have a stroke. What are you going to try to do next? So it's just you if you keep a sense of humor, try to find the good in things and try to find the lightness, even in the really heavy situations, it's always there. And it's not to diminish how difficult it is because it still is, but mm-hmm. it gives you some strength, I guess, to, to, to hold that heavy load and to deal with the difficult situation when you can find some humor and some lightness and some hope in it. And that obviously goes with a, good amount of social support you know having Mm -hmm. having people around you that can that can help you and um you know having that emotional support and that's why I, i talk about this so much and try to advocate for it so much is because i think the system the healthcare system has a role to play in providing that emotional support and psychological support 
to not only the patient, but the family members that are deeply affected by it as well. Because right now the onus is on us to find help for ourselves, to decide what it is that we need, try to find someone who accepts our insurance because we're in the United States. It's not always a guarantee who uh, has the right kind of expertise for whatever the issue is that you're dealing with, who lives in your area that you can get to that's taking new patient, right? Like that's a lot of cognitive load. It's not like it's rocket science, but it's a lot of cognitive effort. And when you're in that state, you don't have that cognitive effort to give. And so if somebody doesn't remove those barriers for you, remove that effort for you and take that on for you, it's probably not going to happen, you know? So if the system were to just make that easier to provide you with the information you need up front, to have even better, to have somebody there in the moment to offer you some support and you can decline. Nobody's forcing this on you, right? But to, but to have this system in place, that's ready to respond to people who come in with these needs would really go a long way in preventing some of the frankly preventable problems that happen afterward. You know, you can, you can treat people like me, you could treat the family members right there in that moment when the patient comes in and they come in with them, or you can treat them down the line when they've had problems that have just snowballed and nowhere to turn to. And so now everything is worse and more expensive and more time consuming and more harmful, right? But there's not really an option where you just don't treat them. So why not treat them up front on purpose in a way that you know will help them build resilience rather than wait for them to have a problem and then have to be reactive. That's it, being preventative. Exactly. And uh, being involved early to prevent the snowball effect. Right. Whereas, and whereas for some people, it's too far gone too. Like this, you know, this doesn't always end with cherry blossoms on top. I don't know if that's an expression. Right. That's, uh, uh, sure. Or rainbow <laughs> unicorns. Um, but right. uh I really like that point because, I mean, I think we are often very short-sighted when, when it comes to resource use. You know, like if we did put more investment up front, the right. long-term implications, whether you're talking about clinical use, uh, resource use, overall well-being, I, I mean, you could guarantee it's going to be better. So, right. yeah. and it, if you get there up front, if you get there right away, it really, it, you don't have to do much. It's not, you know, it's not like they need to go to the ICU and have all that stuff done, right? It's simple things. It's things like getting them set up with a counselor or um, it's things like explaining to them what it is they just saw. Because most people, you know, cardiac arrest in particular mostly happens at home, which means the responders are going to be family members. Mm -hmm. And often those people are not medical professionals, as I am not a medical professional. And, you know, especially in the cases where, where people don't survive, you need that closure sometimes of just what just happened? What did I see? Why did they do this? Why did his body do that? And those are the things that healthcare workers don't think about anymore because that's all basic knowledge for you guys. But for us outside of the medical system, that is perplexing and disturbing. And we, we want to know what 
just happened. <laughs> and we don't want to know the facts and statistics and the medical jargon about it. We want it in a way that we can actually understand and that relates to the experience we just had, not whatever the averages are, you know. 100%. And as you're saying this, it just makes me more and more proud of the healthcare or of the social workers that, you know, I, I've come across and because they do all the things that you mentioned, you know, they really yeah. do. Yeah. Like I know I'm thinking of one specifically that will go back and be like, do you want me to translate in English for you? Yes, um, exactly. Do you, uh, you're going to have a lot of questions, like write them down, like email me and all the, all the right things that are being family centric. And so I, I think, um, it just hearing this just really reinforces how important the work they do is and how, how, how much it's needed and then yeah. areas that it's not happening. It needs to happen full stop. And, yes. and also before I forget, as a guy that is maybe not as funny as your husband or yourselves, <laughs> this is definitely laughter serves an amazing, like it's great medicine. It serves yes. a great role. And I know a lot of us within ICU, within palliative care, we do spend a lot of time actually laughing and, and smiling yeah. and because it's healing and it's uh, it such an important part of getting through tough times. So uh, hearing you say that, um, really reinforces in my mind how important it is to to share those moments to giggle absolutely yes it gets back to our humanity right that's a that's a level where we can all connect on a basic level of, of humanity to share a laugh together and to find and validate in each other the ridiculousness of the experience that you're having you know um, Absolutely. sometimes in the medical system, laughter is seen as unprofessional. I know my husband really tackles that in his, um, videos sometimes, but it's not, it's, it's a way to cope. It's a coping mechanism and it's healthy and it's healing, like you said, and it helps you feel a little more sense of control mm -hmm. over these horrible things that happen that are out of your control. It gives you a little piece of that back to where you feel like, okay, that gave me enough strength to just keep moving one foot in front of the other. And then eventually mm. you get there. hundred percent. And, uh, and, and if, if Will ends up listening to this or you get to speak to, to him, don't worry about the professionalism, buddy. Like, oh, yeah, no, he doesn't. Dive on your <laughs> own journey. You, I mean, if anyone understands life is too short, uh, I feel exactly. like medical medicine professionals, we take ourselves too seriously. Like, forgive my French, but fuck that shit. Um, yeah. Yeah. I agree. You know what I'm yeah. We'll walk your walk and uh, good people will follow. I promise you. Yeah. And as a patient, honestly, I want a physician who can laugh at himself or, or the situation. You don't want to be laughed at obviously, but I don't think that's what anybody's doing. I think no. we're all just, it just shows the humanity and that's what I want a physician. I don't want someone whose hands on the doorknob and clearly in a hurry because they have 10 more patients to see before lunch. You know, I want someone who can, who can show me they understand my human experience and reflect that back to me. And I think, uh, you know, laughter is a part of that and joking is a part of that. And there needs to be a place for that in healthcare as well, because it is really serious stuff that has really serious consequences. And so we need laughter for that reason. 100%. Kristen. This has been 
glorious. <laughs> I feel educated. I feel inspired. I feel awesome. the continued need to, to to bring that comedy flavor. I feel the continued need to make sure our, our patients and families have their voices heard and that we address things holistically like we've always meant to do. So keep doing what you're doing. And honestly, it means the world to us that you, you, you came on. So thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me. Thanks for, for giving me an opportunity to share more about all this. 100%. Thank you so much. Yo, tell me that episode wasn't fresh. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Facebook at Quadcast. Leave any comments at Quadcast99 at gmail.com. Make sure to leave that five-star rating. That's how we change that boogie. Increase the visibility of the show. Folks, we love you. Thanks for all the positive vibes and, the, and listening. We really appreciate it. And we'll connect again real soon. Peace.